morning as um, we gather, we're continuing a series of messages that we've started a few weeks ago uh, entitled Go. And if you are familiar with uh, what churches do, one of the key ingredients to how we do what we do in the name of the Lord is to make sure that the word gets out. And at the end of uh, the Gospel of Matthew, there is a declaration that Jesus made to uh, all of the people that had stuck with him. And he said, uh, there is a, a new game uh, that, is, that is in play. And it centers around the things that have just happened regarding uh, his death and his burial and his resurrection. And now uh, everyone is just like, um, uh, going gangbusters, making sure that everything that Jesus summarized in his life is broadcast to as many people as possible. Not having phones or the internet or walkie-talkies or anything like that. They just had to go and they had to bring it uh, through their, their own feet or through the mail. And that was about the only informational pathway that they had to convey the good news with. And we're looking at that whole notion of how the good news changes lives because many of us in the room have had uh, people come to our doorstep and say, here's the good news, and it's made all the difference. And I don't know about you, but I've been a pastor for uh, going on... Uh, well over 30 years, and it seems like it's, it's, it's had a lot of components to a long-distance marathon uh, where you're constantly pushing and pushing, hoping that by the grace of God, the word can get out and people will respond and lives will be changed. And I don't know if anyone in the room can relate to the, to the idea of a marathon. Has anybody ever ran a marathon in this room, taking the effort? You know, Rachel, you've ran it? You run them all the time. Do you run the marathon that is 26.219 miles? Do you run that one? Uh, you stay away from that one. Don't touch that one with the 10-foot pole, do you? Have you ever wondered, why is a marathon 26.19 miles? I mean, that's, that's mystified me for a long time. Uh, and then uh, it was explained to me that it's a marathon. Don't you know? Don't you know the story? And uh, certainly did not know that there is a whole story behind the 26.19 miles. But there is. And Marathon isn't just the name of an old gas station. It actually goes farther back than that. It goes way back into history to a point where it is significant enough that people have uh, thought that it would be worthy to carry on and pass on to their children. And uh, if, if you're like me, it's a story that got lost. My parents didn't pass it on to me. Uh, but thankfully, the Internet and other sources have been sufficient to give me uh, a little sense of why that word is even there and why people will do what I would consider not even a bucket list item running a marathon, 26 miles, 0.219. If it was... 0.219, I think it wouldn't be so bad, but add the 26 to it, and you're talking not just a side ache, you're talking probably death, and I'm not interested in that. However, it seems like every year there's a Boston Marathon, and then even in Salem there's marathons that happen, and people are addicted to the concept of marathon, and I have to wonder why. Perhaps it's because it is such a feat of endurance and so worthy of the goal that the training that goes into preparing for it is well worth your time. And that may or may not be the case. 
Uh, and you may be asking yourself, what in the world does that have to do with the Bible and the gospel and the good news? You see, when we read the Bible, we find a lot of things in it. Many of them point to the realities that uh, were just mentioned in prayer regarding how God has forgiven us and he's given us a, a new hope and a new chance and a new opportunity and new security. And that definitely hits right here for many of us. But how God conveys that through the life of Jesus and then words are used to transport that information far and away uh, is pretty amazing. And the Apostle Paul, whenever he's writing one of his very long letters, but very powerful, says these words, How beautiful on the mountains are those who bring the good news. Kind of a word phrase, isn't it? Until you look at what Paul was aware of that many of us weren't. That that is actually marathon language. As a matter of fact, just a few hundred years prior to Paul writing those words to the, the Roman church, he was, he was drawing into the imaginations of people who remembered that epic day as it was told. It was a day like our Revolutionary War uh, victory against England. It was, it was a day like uh, D-Day in World War II. It was a day that would not be forgotten for a very, very long time. And for the people in Paul's day, it was a day that was still kind of feeling fresh, even though it was 200 years old. And we have marathons that actually commemorate that day, so much so that we don't even know why, but yet... It was so important that it lives on. Now, if you wanted to know what a marathon truly meant, besides, in my definition, um, letting your insides get turned inside out, it really means that there is good news. That the runner who reaches that 26.219 miles has not just paced himself, he has sprinted that whole duration to make sure that the people who hear the good news that he has to say is, is embedded in their minds enough that they can, they can have joy. And so I'm not going to tell you any more other than show you a video of what I've just been talking about. Let's see if we can. Send 
Pithipides starts his way back, deeply disappointed since Spartans couldn't depart right away. He was thinking that they might arrive too late to help. As he was crossing Mount Parthenio, he had a vision of the god Pan. Pan was the god of shepherds and flocks. He had hindquarters and goat horns. According to ancient Greeks, he used to live in the Arcadian mountains. He was the son of Hermes, the messenger of the gods, and the wood nymph Triope. She gave birth to a child with an appalling sight. Goat's legs, pointed ears, two horns on his head, and even his face was covered with a dense beard. God Pan protested because there was no temple devoted to him in Athens. He told Philippides that the outnumbered Athenians would win the vast and well-armed Persian forces. He would help by creating an unbearable noise, panicking the Persian army. His request was that should his prophecy prove right, Athenians should build a magnificent temple devoted to him. Phidipides returned to Athens and informed his fellow citizens about the delay of the Spartans and God Pan's prophecy that the Athenian army would defeat the vast Persian army. They decided to fight the Persians in Marathon. Athenians were supported by a thousand soldiers from the city of Plataea under General Mithyadis' strategic genius. They beat the mighty Persian army. Had that battle been lost, world history would have been different. The feet of Philippides adorns the annals of history. His vision became a reality. Now it is your turn to come and fulfill your own dream. Come to run in his footsteps to accomplish your own feat and become part of the triumphant Greek history. All the awesome CGI aside, uh, that story actually is, is um, uh, a pretty epic story that was told from generation to generation to generation. And what the video didn't share with you was how after the defeat occurred, a uh, six to one ratio against the Greeks, meaning that they were in such a minority that it seemed impossible that they would be, uh, uh, they would defeat the Persian Empire in all of its might and power. Yet that's exactly what they did. But the point isn't so much that as to what the runner did in response to that defeat. Because back in Athens, there was this sense that if they are defeated, it is the end. Men, women, children, animals, everything needs to run for the hills. So people were looking the road and they were anticipating that there would be one who would come running and he would have that message of either defeat or victory and when he did they could tell far away just by the gate the body language everything that conveyed either a sense of despair and defeat and and loss or a joy that was uh, so unimaginable that it empowered him to sprint the 26 miles which of course he did, and he came to the feet of the leaders of, uh, of the community of Athens, and he told them, oh, we have won, we have defeated our enemy, and he just said, we have won, we have won, we have won, and it was so bound up in his being and needing to be expressed that after he said it, the legend is he fell over and he died. And people took that into 
uh, 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 a mythology that became part of the Olympics and then became part of our own backdrop for the Boston Marathon, the Salem Marathon. First Christian Church will probably never have a marathon, but uh, if we did, uh, I would like to reframe it a little bit differently and just do the, you know, the, the point two one nine part of the marathon. Had that, had that, had that uh, been a possibility for us, uh, we may not even be here as far as that being the only good news that we could share. But for the gospel, it seems like there's a different victory that is being proclaimed loudly by people who are wanting to have that same level of enthusiasm to make sure that everyone knows that we have won, we have won, we have won. And that is the good news. Now the Apostle Paul, when he's writing to uh, people in Rome, he's saying, you know that story, that epic story where had the Persians won, we would be a completely different country. But we know that because the Greeks won and then the Romans defeated the Greeks, that we are in a really good spot right now. And everybody sensed that being a part of the Roman Empire was really to be where it was at. We had the power, the resources, the opportunities, uh, the wealth, everything that a person who had access to those things could celebrate. But many, many people did not have access to those things and their enthusiasm wasn't so great. But in a sense, there was this national pride that because of that defeat, we are, we're, we're a civilized people. And it just was like stories about the Revolutionary War that we have, the Civil War, the Second World War. Uh, they, they just are part of our backdrop of our lives. We know those things happen and they changed everything. Now, why did Paul say... How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Because he was comparing the weight of the message of victory that Phipides, if I pronounce that right, had when he brought that word into Athens with a message of victory that comes every time somebody walks into the life of another human being who's wondering, is there, is there a good that I can tune into? Is there the possibility for hope and not despair? Is this life all that there is? For many people, will I be relegated to slavery my whole life? For other people, it will be, yeah, I'm wealthy, I'm well-resourced, but not happy. You see, people that lived in the time of the Apostle Paul had this longing for something more that nothing that was uh, the result of great victories could ever produce. It was a deeper longing. Now you notice in the story, it's interesting, who was it that Phidippides encountered on the mountain? It was a god. It was a God who said, it's going to go well for you because even though you use swords and arrows and instruments of weaponry, the real battle is in the unseen realm. It is the battle that has to happen between the deities that are in control of the Persians and the deities that are in control of the Greeks. And that's really how everybody thought. 
Can you imagine thinking about our president? And then you think, who's the deity behind the president to ensure that we win a victory in the wars that we have with other nations? And that's exactly the line of reasoning that was very common for pretty much everybody up until the 20th century. And then people just simply thought about, we've got a better military arsenal than the next people that we're competing against. They lose. But the question still remains. Behind every battle that you and I fight, whether it's just the daily battle of dealing with the, the problems and the frustrations of life, or the battles that we fight that are really life and death, behind those battles, are there also dark forces at work that need to be defeated? Bless you. And if there are, what difference does it make? You see, when Jesus came on the scene, it was assumed that there were sort of two layers at least to everything. There was the layer of the realm that we live and move and breathe in, and then there was a layer underneath that, the realm that involved our prayers, our offerings to the deities, our hopefully currying favor of forces that are unseen, but if we do the right things in the right way, with the right amount of repetition or the right words, that things will begin to break our way because those powers will show us favor. And that's really been the thinking of so many people for so long. That when Paul opened up the book of Romans, he said, people who are not informed of the things of God, many of them just turn to these idols that have their own deities behind them and they look for their own answers through that means. And then there are some who say, I see a little bit beyond that. I know there is good. There is a God. There are purposes that are worth living for. And I know that I have a destiny that's beyond this world. But they had no way of giving an explanation to that. They had no language or vocabulary that would say, this is actually how that longing plays out. And it centers on the person of Jesus. When Paul said... How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. He realizes that something has to happen in order for those feet to move into those lives. He knows that the people that are longing are the ones who are saying, I have a couple of options here. One is I can kind of believe in that unknown God. I'm not an atheist, but I'm kind of agnostic about it. And I'll say a prayer or two and I hope good things happen. Others will say, no, there are pathways into power that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to utilize. And it wasn't uncommon in Paul's day for a business owner to have to go to a gathering of people that would do rituals that would be designed for the sole purpose of worshiping a god or a deity. And many times involving sacrifice and things that actually are pretty dark. And that was pretty common. However, in your day and mine, when we hear the word gospel, does it have that kind of significance? Are we at a place right now in time and space where you have young people who are the age of my son Stephen who can't really see the significance of what it is that is so good about the good news, who kind of see the Jesus thing as optional? You have people a little bit older who maybe are saying, yeah, you know what? We just don't believe that old stuff. You have people my age who are kind of ambivalent about it. Some of us have 
found our way back to church and others were just kind of making it up as we go. But regardless of the response of the people in those demographic places, the need is still there. Because the one thing the Apostle Paul recognized is that everyone is longing for a better way and a better day. Even though maybe we have food on the table and maybe we have children and we have a means of being gainfully employed and maybe we have all those things that life says you need to have to be content. Maybe we have all those things and yet we are still longing for something that tells us. There will come a day when the frustrations that you face each day will not be part of the equation. There will come a day when you wake up and you start thinking about the day and then you start thinking about the problems and then you think about how insurmountable things are. There will come a day when you wake up and you realize you don't have to be so heavily burdened by those things. There will come a day when you know that the stuff that you're doing right now is just a distraction from the things that you worry about up ahead. It could be like a real world thing, like I don't know if the employer who is responsible for my paycheck is even going to have a business this time next year or in five years or ten years. It could be a, a real world situation like I don't know, given the circumstances that I'm facing personally with my health, whether I'll be here five or ten years from now. And all of us in this room have things that get inside of our head that just nag at us that say, I wish there was some good news that could help me with that. Many of us have this sense of powerlessness. We can barely manage our own lives, let alone our relationships. And then when you think about our own children and the things that they get into, we wonder... How much power do we have to influence them in ways that keep them on track? And there's something about those questions that says, everything around me offers promises for each of those needs, but I've yet to find one that's fully satisfying. And so the people who lived during Paul's day, they would go to the local deity establishment and they would do whatever they had to do. And in some cases, unseen powers would make things work their way because they sacrificed something that, that the deity demanded. And you may be thinking, that's just weird, Leonard. That is something that people don't really do too much of anymore, but I would just ask you, you could get on your phone right now and get on Amazon and type in the best-selling books in feminism and you will discover that the first several books are centered on witchcraft. And then if you look at things that people are into right now, trying to make sense of a future that in the hands of the politicians that are not credible by any stretch... How is it that we can even plan ahead? And so believe it or not, another product that Amazon likes to sell us is tarot cards. And I don't know if you've ever dabbled with that stuff, but the Bible calls that a form of divination. It's just a pathway to deities in that unseen realm. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. But is it really 
good enough for my problems and my sense of powerlessness. And I wonder, is it good enough for the people in our church, the people that aren't in our church? And I have to be honest, after being a pastor for 30 years, I found that there is something to the good news that has such substance to it that I certainly can't ignore it. And the longer I'm familiar with it, the more I want to be that marathon runner. The more I want to share the difference that it makes. My niece um, lives in Seattle, Washington. I don't know if you've ever been to Seattle or not, but it's a different universe than Salem, Ohio. Her boyfriend, uh, a former boyfriend, worked for Microsoft and she worked for uh, a, a marketing firm that influences all of the things that we receive advertisement-wise in the Midwest. And most of the time they spend uh, their weekends and their free time going to microbreweries and wineries and some of them go to places that dispense marijuana in all of its forms, both smoking and eating and for those of you who were in the first service and drinking, uh, it is just a way of taking that deep need and servicing it with distractions, with medication, with escapism, but it doesn't go away. And so when my daughter Maya went out there last week, she came back and she had originally wanted to, as an engineer, aspire to work for Boeing and hopefully get into, into, into the, uh, the, the, the air and space side of it. And when she came back, I was curious because I wondered, is she going to be pulled into that environment? And she told me, she said, no, it's so empty. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, there's a, there are buildings right in the middle of Seattle that are monuments to Jeff Bezos of Amazon, monuments to Microsoft, monuments to Google, monuments to all the high-tech people. And she said, technology is their savior, but their lives sure don't show it. And then she told me about a bridge that people go to when their savior lets them down, and the bridge doesn't. Because in their mind, jumping off of it is their way of saying, well, at least I found this answer. How beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news. But Paul prefaces that saying by helping us to understand that how can they know if they've never heard and how can they how can how can they take those words that they've heard if no one's ever brought them to their doorstep how can they even begin to comprehend that there is good news unless somebody goes and churches our fundamental business is to make sure that the good news gets out i mean we can have a building we can have you know beautiful green carpeting from another era we can have all this stuff, you know, new drum kit. But that's not really what it's about. It is about 
something that we have that many people don't, but they're looking for uh, an answer in places that only disappoint. You know, I love technology, but I have to tell you, it's starting to show its dark side. Having a digitized platform as a community has its own rules and means of interacting, and yet how many of us have interacted with the technological platforms and walked away saying, I feel worse about myself than I feel better. Now, I'm not saying that they have no value. They certainly do. But I am saying when they say that they can save you and they don't, then watch out. It's just another carved image that is spoken about in Romans 1. You know, where Paul starts off by saying, I, Paul, an apostle that is one sent from Christ, am a slave to the gospel of Christ. And that's my job. And I'm more than happy to be that person enslaved to that particular purpose. Because he recognized something in all of us. Whatever it is that we look to to satisfy our deepest need, we become a servant to. Whether it's our technology, whether it is our job, whether it is finding the best winery, the best microbrewery, the best pot dispensary, whatever it is, there is just this feeling around through all of the things that life has to offer, trying to find that one thing. And yet, it leaves us empty and worse. The people in Seattle pretty much believe that there is no God, my, my daughter told me. They don't believe that that's even a category worth considering. And so they carry on like there is no God, but then they worship all of these things that become their God. My niece's ex-boyfriend now, I guess, um, when he would wake up in the morning, even though he was a very high-functioning person that worked for Microsoft, would have um, uh, some bourbon for breakfast. And it's kind of like a George Thorogood song. But he said, then he would have whiskey for lunch, and then he would have schnapps for supper. And my, 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 uh, my daughter said everywhere he went, he was just drinking all the time. And their dog has high anxiety, I think, because they have high anxiety. And so they have to go to the dispensary to get hippie lettuce oil and rub it on him to calm down. And yet, for some reason, this works. Well, that's enough talking about other people. Because the people in the room are really the only people that we typically have to interact with regarding this good news. And the difference that it makes. And I, I wonder if it's really penetrated your heart in a way that it does make a difference. Or are you just kind of flirting with it somewhat? Well, in, in the scriptures, I'm just going to put some up there if we can. Um, in Romans uh, 10, we read that verse that I've been mentioning so often. In 10.15, just so you think I'm not making it up. You know, last, last sermon, I got accused of making something up. Because I said, I said, and drinking pot. And then I had more older people come up to me and say, you drink pot? 
And at first, you know, I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt, thinking, you know, it's a toilet humor thing. No, they weren't going there. They were like, they wanted to know, which bothered me because I'm like, why are you so curious? You don't need to know. And then I said, yeah, you can drink it, you can smoke it, you can eat it. I said, it has multiple forms of delivery. I said, do you really want to know that and talk about that? They said, well, we just didn't know. We thought maybe you slipped up. And the bottom line is, maybe I did. You'll never know. But the one thing that I don't slip up on is this. Uh, because this is truly what we're about. And when the Apostle Paul says, it's what I'm about, we read in Romans 1, the verse I referred to a minute ago. Paul, an apostle, a slave of Jesus Christ, set apart for the gospel of God. And he knew the significance of this good news, but maybe you do or don't. Let me just review it real quickly. You see, after Jesus had went through his whole ordeal for three years, he put the face of God on a human being, and it gave us a real sense of what life would be like if God were one of us. And he began to respond to other people in a way that gave us a sense of this is how God would respond whenever he interacted with people, when he got into an argument with them, when, 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 when he rubbed them the wrong way and they rubbed him the wrong way. This is how God would respond when he sees a need in somebody's life and he has a means by which he can help out with that. This is how God responds whenever there's a health care need and a person is really languishing or in a, a deep amount of desperation to find some relief. And at every turn, Jesus responded to those situations, to the lives of the people that needed, for lack of a better word, God. And he gave God to them. But it was so different because they were so unused to experiencing God this way. There was really uh, only, only a couple of means by which you could relate to God. One is you go to the temple, you offer a sacrifice, and the priests will determine how far into the whole temple system uh, you can go and how close you can get to God. But for the most part, they were the gatekeepers. You couldn't get in or out without them directing you. And they'd shut out basically everybody. So much so that they were, they're sort of like those people in Seattle. They're like, maybe there's a God, maybe there's not. But if there is, we can't get close to him even if we wanted to and we don't. And Jesus said, we got to put a fresh perspective into the minds of the people who are so confused about what the good news is. So he embodied it to such a degree that it offended many, many people. And underneath the surface level of life that Jesus was living out here on planet Earth with the five senses and with the interaction was another level that Jesus also recognized. And it was that unseen level that we've tended to ignore. It is the level of demons and fallen angels and all of those things happening in the unseen realm. They too were taken note because immediately after Jesus was baptized, the Gospel of Mark tells us that Jesus went around healing people and casting out demons. And they were amazed because people don't do that. No one has the authority to do that. These demons are in control and you can do incantations and rituals and offerings, but you're not going to get rid of them. And yet, <laughs> to 
time after time after time. It was like shooting fish in a barrel. He was just plucking them out of these lives and people were being set free. Declaration to the one who tempted him in the wilderness prior to that that you lose. But the one who tempted him in the wilderness still does not believe it. When Jesus lived out that three years and he upset enough people, they decided that it was time to get rid of him, which they began to conspire against his whole existence here on earth to a point where they found some witnesses, they found some narratives, they found some people that were willing to go along, they found some religious leaders that were angry, they found some governmental people that were wanting to get rid of anybody that's going to stir anybody up and the convergence of all of those forces led to an arrest, a trial, a betrayal, false accusations, the burden of carrying a cross through the community all the way through the humiliation of everyone seeing it and then up a hill to a place called the skull so that you could be executed for everyone to see. And God did that, as Rich so carefully prayed about this morning, to show us his face, to show us that he has more in store for us, to show us that there is a better way, and to give us a sense that the devil is being put on high alert and being served notice. When it seemed like it didn't go the way that everyone thought it should go, everybody said, that news was good up until the point that he put his head down and died. Little did they know that he was servicing the needs of this layer, but he was also servicing the needs of this layer. Because there's a part of the Bible that says in First Peter, when he died and he went into the grave, he went into the underworld and he told the demons and he told the fallen angels and he told the dark forces of at work the powers and the principalities you lose you lose and he defeated them not like a military general would do by just coming in and violently attacking all of the opposing uh, forces he defeated them with the power of love because the love of God went into the grave and pulled him back out. And on the third day, he reanimated that body in such a way that it gave us an example of what our bodies look like. The other side of our own deaths, moving into that body of glory. And so if you ever wonder, you're going to all be nice looking. You're all going to be like 30. You're going to be on the top of your game. I honestly don't know. But I do know this that what Jesus did was so frightening for those dark forces that they've been on the run ever since. But the problem is, how can you defeat an enemy if you don't have the right weapon? And so there are people all over the place, including... Hopefully not in this room, but in this community who are locked in to things that are controlling them. Maybe even 
if they're experimenting with Amazon in certain ways, maybe even forces that they don't know anything about. And at every level, Jesus said, I've won, I've won, I've won. And when the disciples saw him, they didn't even recognize him because the possibility of victory was just really out of, out of the range of consideration. And yet, when he showed up, he said, this is good news. And I want you to do something with it. And had he said that prior to the victory that was the victory above all good news events that any marathon runner could carry, they might have said, yeah, sure. And then fallen away. But there wasn't any falling away after this victory. There was only, where do we go? And what do we do with this? And who do we give it to? They couldn't help themselves. I mean, it became such a contagious thing that non-marathon runners became marathon experts. It became such a, a compelling drive inside of them. Their excitement was so high that they knew that all of these people are caught up in all of these lies. And now, for once, they can be, they can be woken back up to what's really there. And if they're bound by something, they can be set free. See, when Paul said, as he's thinking about that runner running through the mountains and then meeting a, a deity that promises victory, and then finding through those promises in his mind a victory that was ascribed to his people because of a goat man in the, in the wilderness. But that's the way the devil works. Masquerading as an angel of light. Trying to promise us things that will satisfy our every need in ways that never can. Over-promising, under-delivering. Over-promising, under-delivering. Some of us have been so jaded by that spiel that we wound up here. And even though everything that Jesus promises doesn't happen immediately, we're confident enough that in the process you see him working because the problem didn't happen overnight. The problem that we create for ourselves and others didn't happen overnight. But the good news is God's untangling all those knots. The good news is there is the power of the cross of Christ to break the curse that has been put upon us that is coupled with the power of the empty tomb which declares that death no longer is our worst enemy and then to cap it all off Jesus says I'm going up there to be with the father but I'm sending one from there to here to be with you so wait and so 40 days they waited and then he came. Just descending on people as like tongues of fire, the scripture says, which is a whole weird statement. But it, in their minds, said enough because they knew 
the significance of what just happened, that all of these people began to be empowered by the presence of God in their lives, and their lives were changed. I just think about my friend um, Sean, um, and I think about my other friend Sean, I think about Rich, I think about many of you in the room. How before somebody brought the good news to your doorstep, you're just kind of going this way. But then when that good news began to awaken your soul, you discovered that this is a game changer. Why am I taking every Sunday morning and going to church? Why am I feeling the need to do a missions project? Why am I feeling the need to serve on my church? Why am I feeling the need to do these things that I wouldn't do otherwise? What's going on inside of me? And that's just it. The power that was at work in Jesus' life to help him accomplish what he accomplished begins to show up in our own. And so people like the votes who you're going to meet on November 4th who are from Columbus, originally from here at least, um, Rich, who is an accountant on the mission field. And when you think of an accountant on the mission field, I know it's a bad analogy, but I kind of think of the lawyer in Jurassic Park. It will just eat you alive. Yet he is nobly intended, of course, with a desire to do the Lord's will by sustaining missionaries on the administrative end. But living with some pretty horrific circumstances, what causes people to do that? Unless something happens inside of them that says, I'm more than willing to do that. What causes a person like Paul who kills Christians for, well, for righteous causes and for personal ambition to say, I'm now a slave of the one who they followed. How does that happen? Well, when we emphasize the word go on your bulletin in this series, it isn't just to go to Thailand or Dominican or other places around the world that we, uh, we love, but it might just be the world that you're in. And there may be somebody who God has created a pathway of conversation where you, if, if you're paying attention and the nudging of his Holy Spirit and maybe the pain that that person is disclosing to you or the need that they have regarding that emptiness, maybe God's saying, I'm orchestrating a conversation. Have some beautiful feet in this moment because they need some beautiful feet. They need some good news. And you may be the only pathway. And it's not, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to coerce you to do this. It's that it makes such a difference in a person's life from fear and insecurity and all of those ego needs that happen to a place where you find a settled contentment in something that is so much richer and deeper. A sense of a new identity that transcends even the grave. A sense of, as I pray for my daily bread, God will give us this day our daily bread. A sense of 
as Susan's found out, adventure. Now, let's be honest, Susan. Three years ago, if I had said to you, you're going to be going to the jail and you're going to be telling people who are incarcerated there about how much you love Jesus, what would you have said to me? No way. <laughs> no way. But what are you doing right now? Exactly. Exactly that. It's weird, isn't it? Is it worth it? It is. You see God move through your life when you do it? Do you see those holes in people's lives start to be filled? Let me see your foot. Stick your foot out there. I'm not a weirdo. That's a beautiful foot right there. I'm sure the other one is too. All right. I love them. Yeah. And as God looks at us, he's saying, I can make any shoe look beautiful if Jesus is the subject matter of the conversation. I want to invite you into that relationship because it really is not about one force defeating another. It is about a person who abides in our lives in such a way that we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. In such a way that even though we will still face frustration, challenges, things that are overwhelming and over our head, often, yet at every turn, God says, I may not take that away from you, but I will always be with you and even working it together for good somehow. That's good news. Isn't it great to think that if you do something, that it's going to have some kind of lasting value? And there's so much more. I just scratched the surface. But for us, it's just realizing that when we talk about missionaries, when we talk about sharing the word, when we talk about just giving people what we have, it is just central to God's heart and constantly needs to be central to our own. Would you bow with me? Father, as each of us in this room is thinking about you in our lives, we know that your only plan is to use other people to make sure that happens. We know that when people pray for us that your spirit begins to move, but that you rely heavily upon those marathon runners who are so compelled to witness to what people have experienced for thousands of years about the life-giving presence of Jesus Christ. That we know, Father, in our hearts that as we invite your Son in, everything changes. I just pray for anyone in this room, Lord, who has not gone to that place in their lives where they have said, I, I do want Jesus in my life. And I pray, Father, that today would be a day when a door opens and your Son is invited in. I pray, Father, that this would be a moment where we could say to ourselves, yeah, I need to look at my feet, and then I need to look at my world, and I need to look at what you're doing, and I need to listen to what you can do through me. So I pray, Father, that you use everyone here for your purpose and for your glory as we, as we begin our marathon, as we train, as we 
run as we deliver the message. Help us, Lord, in all of those ways and more. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.